Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app, as well as your popular podcast platforms. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you for the next 60 minutes as we continue to get you set for the NFL Draft, as well as take you through the latest Giants news. And we're going to start with the NFL Draft. Today, we're going to focus on the Florida Gators and to further break down their prospects. We are now joined by Pat Dooley, who covers the Florida Gators for the Gainesville Sun. Pat, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time. I hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Yeah, we're hanging in there, as, as I think everybody is. Hopefully, uh, you know, I think we've gone from we want, we want sports back to we just want everybody to get through this. Absolutely, and that's why we're trying to distract the fan base by at least turning the attention back to football, and we certainly appreciate you coming on to provide some further insight on these Florida Gator prospects. So, Pat, let's start with what appears to be the top guy, and that is cornerback C.J. Henderson, who has been very opportunistic, it seems, throughout his career. The pass breakups jumps out to me 11 he had in 2019. What is it about his game that makes him an extremely appealing prospect in the secondary? Well, I mean, he's just a terrific athlete. He's got great uh, speed. He can he can make up, you know, for maybe missing a coverage by by making up uh, up with speed. And he's also a very physical guy. You know, when he came to Florida as a freshman, he was just this skinny six foot one guy, and you know, I don't think a lot of us thought he was going to be anything special, but. You could just tell he's got an instinct for the ball. You know, it's funny. He's kind of got the what Jalen Tabor had in terms of uh, wanting to pay attention to what to detail and and the smarts, but way more athletic. As you know, Jalen Tabor wasn't the fastest guy and has struggled in the NFL. Uh, but uh, there's no question that uh, CJ is a different kind of guy, and it's kind of funny because this year, because on the other side, they had a guy coming off uh, knee surgery from uh, in Marco Wilson, so uh, teams t- tend to go away from CJ anyway. You know, they said, "Well, we're going to go after this guy." Florida's uh, nickelback wasn't very good this year, so they didn't go at him. But when they went at him, uh, he he was able to, as you said, have all those breakups. Not a lot of picks, but certainly a lot of breakups. You know, it seems that everybody across the board says that Okuda out of Ohio State is obviously the premier corner in this draft and should be a top five pick. But those who like Henderson also remind us that he had an ankle injury. And with the lack of visits and the lack of pro days and and all the uh, checkups that guys can have during this uh, springtime, how much could that potentially hurt his draft stock? Well, you know, that's the thing. He got hurt in the, I want to say it was the second game of the year, uh, and uh, hurt his ankle, and, and they thought he was going to be out for a long time. He he came back, but he was out for a good part of that uh, this season, including some of the biggest games. But when he came back, it didn't seem to, you know, like they waited. They didn't push him to get him back just to try to win games. They waited till he was 100%. So I think that if, all you got to do is look at the tape uh, and see what he did. Also, I think he did very good in the combine. But look, I think all the players uh, are, uh, you know, all the general managers in, in the NFL are kind of looking at all these guys a little warily because they haven't got this huge body of work in terms of uh, pro days and all that stuff. They've got the combine and then they've got their game tape, but, you know, they want to overthink it, as you know. So they're kind of, uh, 
they're kind of nervous about drafting anybody. But I, I think CJ is one of those guys that really is a, a can't miss corner. He could be your corner for like seven or eight years. I, I don't, I don't question whether he's his talent level. I think his talent level is way higher than some corners that have been high picks at Florida, to be honest with you. Pat, when you play corner in the NFL, clearly you want to look at their coverage skill set, but another big part of the skill set is whether or not they can aid in stopping the run, especially depending on what the defense asked them to do. How was he in terms of his coverage against the run compared to what he did down the field? You know, I see guys who come in at a high school and none of them want to tackle at that position. And in fact, uh, we used to get on Chauncey Gardner Johnson, who of course is with the Saints now because he don't want to tackle anybody. <laughs> but his junior year, he started tackling people. He started actually laying the lumber, you know. And I think CJ has great technique as far as that goes. He's figured out how to tackle guys. You don't have to always be trying to blow them up. You can just get him down is the main thing. I thought he was a really good tackler. I can't remember many tackles he missed. Now, as a sophomore, I can remember a bunch he missed. So I think he got better at that, and I think he knew if I'm gonna, the higher I'm going to get drafted is going to be based on I've got to add that to my resume, uh, not just the coverage part, but the tackling part. You've got two other guys on the Gators defensively along that front, and I guess it's Zuniga and Greenard, who unfortunately also have had some injury uh, history in their past and I think that a lot of people are intrigued by some of their skills but nonetheless they're not blue chippers and, and seem to be much more second day prospects yeah you know the thing with uh, with Jonathan Bernard is that he played his tail off every minute he was in a game and I, and I have great respect for guys who do that it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great NFL player but you know he came back he got hurt in the uh Orange Bowl game, and then came back on the field and played really well. Got a bunch of sacks in the game. You know, uh, FSU. He was he got banged up. He and, and came in. I think they had he had three sacks in that game. So he's got a knack for rushing the the passer and a, and a great uh, you know burst off the corner. Uh, the the ankle's fine now. And again, his injury at Louisville, where he the reason he left Louisville. Uh, he only played, I think it was in the first game, was a wrist injury, but that was fine all year. So I don't think he's damaged goods. I think it's uh, sometimes it's hard to play that position and not get hurt at some point. Zuniga was out for a lot longer, and, and uh, I think Zuniga's a better run stopper. I don't think he's anywhere near the pass rusher Grenard is, but, uh, yeah, I, I would not. Uh, you, you don't have enough quality tape on Jabari Zuniga, um, you know, to, to pick him. I thought I, we all thought he was going to be what Ja'Kai Polite was um, the year before. And I'm just talking about the college part of him. Obviously, the pro part hasn't worked out so well. But, no. um, yeah. But, when, when you, you know, you listen to the wrong people, you gain weight, you're not going to be any good. Yeah, we, all know that. <laughs> we all deal with that every day. So, um, but, yeah, I think, I think uh, Zuniga – we thought was going to have a special year, but the, the injury, the ankle, uh, just kept getting in his way, and so there's not a lot of great tape on him. And he could he could be, you know, he could either be a guy who uh, is a real steal way down, well down in the draft, or a big risk. So I, I personally would not be a uh, would would not risk a very high pick. It would have to go pretty low for me to pick him, Grenard. I love guys like him, but sometimes they just, you know, you don't know if they're going to be 
great pros. You know that they're going to bust their butts and they're going. But he's not a huge guy. You know, he's not uh, physically uh, large, and I don't know how good a run stopper he would be uh, as an every down guy. I think he could be a good edge pass rusher in the NFL. You know, on third downs. We're talking with Pat Dooley, who covers the Florida Gators for the Gainesville Sun. And the other thing, Pat, that's interesting about Zuniga, I was reading he was a basketball player growing up. So he actually only played football for one year of high school. So I would think that further raises the questions about is it more projection than production? Because you know, even though you said he showed some potential in college, his resume, though, is extremely small because he barely played football in high school. No, it would be a, a gamble almost anywhere you took him. Uh, but I think it, it, I think it would be a good gamble uh, depending on how low in the draft you went. Like I would not take him in the second or third round, something like that. I would, I would, I would wait on that. And he, you never know. He could blossom. Again, I think the feeling, and, and we talked to the coaches a lot about this, the feeling in their camp was that he was going to have an unbelievable year and then the injuries got in the way. So they felt pretty strongly about how talented he was. and uh, So, yeah, but it still would be a little bit of a risk. Unless I misread their vitals, Pat, both of those guys were 6'3 and played in the 260s. Now, where would you see those guys going in terms of an NFL scheme? You see both of them as being guys on the edge in a 3-4, in a or do you see them possibly coming inside and being a three technique? Yeah, because, you know, basically Grenard kind of played that, what they call the buck position here, which is kind of a 3-4 defensive end, but mostly he rushed the passer. Um, and, and I and again, with Zuniga, we did, didn't see him enough to know whether how they would want to play him. He played on the other side when he did play. Uh, but I'll tell you, when they didn't have those two guys against the LSU, you know, obviously Joe Burrow had a tremendous year, but he never, he never got a finger laid on him because they were that good and they didn't have the guys behind them. So, yeah, I think I think you could play them at kind of you, – you, I don't see them either one of them playing inside. Um, I, I think they both would have to be edge guys. I want to switch gears to the offensive side of the ball, Pat, and there's a few wide receivers that are available for this year's draft. But let's start with Van Jefferson appealing in terms of the fact that his father, Sean, played 13 seasons in the NFL and is now an assistant coach with the Jets – it seems as if the last two seasons when he transferred to Florida from Ole Miss, the production has picked up. I'm assuming that part of it is because of the usage. But where do you see his biggest strength, especially since from what I've seen on film, from what I've read, he really played all across the board at the three different receiver positions? Yeah, no, he's uh, he's like I think his strength is route running and not only what not only running the route that you're supposed to run, but finding a way to get open when that route's not there. He, he did some things in his two years here that I was just amazed at, um, you know, where he's supposed to go inside, but the guy's playing him inside and he cuts outside. So I think that certainly is a big, uh, I, you know, I don't know how good a pro he's going to be. I don't know. He's got good speed. It's not ridiculous speed, um, but he, he catches everything. That's the other thing I like about him a lot. Uh, he was a big factor for this team and there would be, a series and they have this they kind of did this a lot where they would say all right throw it to van on every play this series and that's going to take all the coverage over to van and then throw it to the other guys because they had four senior receivers so it allowed them to do a lot of that but 
Um, I, I think he's a good, solid player, and I think he will. You know, he works really hard at it. He's a um, and he's a good leader. He's a good guy. I, I like that guy a lot. One thing I had read about him, Pat, is that if I'm not mistaken, it said he was going to be 24 by opening day in the NFL season. He's a little older than some of these guys who come out, especially some of the guys who come out as an underclassman. Is there a story behind why he's in an advanced age? Well, he had a redshirt year at Ole Miss, and then he um, obviously, you know, some guys just graduate late from high school. But um, he's, you know, you can look at that two one of two ways. A guy who is mature, and every dealing we've ever had with him, he, he seemed to be very mature, a, a good leader, uh, not the kind of guy who's going to be a diva the way, as we all know, most wide receivers in the NFL are. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think it. Um, I think he will would be a great guy to have. Like I could see him getting on an NFL team, you know, and 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 maybe even being on the practice squad for a year, and then and then actually emerging as a good player. I don't know that he'd ever be a star. I, I just don't see that in it. But I do think he can be a really good player. The other thing I saw statistically, Pat, he drew eleven penalties in his last two seasons at Florida, which is certainly impressive. Is that a reflection, in your opinion, of the route running, or is there something else about his fundamentals that he's able to catch some of the defenders off guard in a precarious spot? No, exactly. I think he he does that very well. He understands the position. You know, you guys have run into a bunch of guys in your careers that just don't understand why they're doing what they're doing. They just do it, and maybe they're talented enough that it doesn't matter. He understands the position. He understands what everybody else is doing. He understands why he's doing it. And he understands what the coverage is. So very cerebral, um, but still physically talented. I mean, he's not a huge running or a wide receiver, but he certainly um, he certainly got the skill, enough skill to make that happen. I, you know, I'm just thinking about the, the Orange Bowl game, and, I, you know, they let you in the lockers, which I know and, and you guys are used to, but in college we don't get in the lockers except bowl games. So I'm in the locker, and I'm kind of hanging out by his locker room, locker because I want to talk to him because he had a great game. And, and uh, he's, he's watching his routes that he ran during the game on his phone. This is after the game. He's not playing another game wow. for the Gators. But he's still watching what he did and how he got open and different things. So, um, you know, really understands the game. Where does the whole thing with that foot fracture stand on him? Do you have any idea? No. And, again, obviously, guys, we're uh, we're like everybody else. We, we don't get a lot of information anyway uh, in Florida. But certainly during this time, we're not getting a whole lot of stuff. But uh, I think he should be, should be fine. I think he'll be ready to go. Swain and Cleveland are the other two guys in that receiving core who at least have drawn some conversation. I don't know what their upside is compared to Jefferson, but I'd appreciate if Packard addressed those two. Yeah, you know, I think Freddie Swain might be a really good player. Freddie Swain's the fastest uh, in terms of football speed. Tyree Cleveland could, did not run a great uh, 40 at the combine, which surprised us, I think, because we all thought, here's a guy that can really fly, and if you remember the the Tennessee game, you know, the, the, where he caught the pass behind the defense on the last play of the game, you know, somehow got behind him. Uh, but he did, he wasn't overly productive. The one thing for Tyree Cleveland is he was a selfless special teams guy. And you don't see that many times from guys who are juniors and seniors. But Dan Mullen convinced him, you're fast, get down there, make tackles, 
and you know in the NFL sometimes you can make the team as a you know fifth or sixth wide receiver if you are good at special teams and you hang around for a little while. So I oh it's critical. It's critical, yeah. Pat. Yeah, so I can see that happening. I think Freddie Swain might be a, a really good player because I love his speed, I love his attitude, I love his uh, ability. Not as shifty as Van Jefferson, but certainly um, is willing to, to do whatever it takes. And, uh, you know, I, I it, there were definitely times during the season when I looked at uh, the guy who writes with me, who covers the team, and I went, how did Freddie Swain get so fast? <laughs> I mean, it was almost it was almost like, where did this come from? You know, he's a kid from right here in uh, just south of here in North Marion High School. So, uh, you know, it, when he started out uh, at Florida, it really wasn't very productive, but it was not an offense that was conducive to it. And now in the last two years, he's gotten better. And the other guy, the fourth senior, is Josh Hammond, who didn't get invited to the Combine. And, and Robbie uh, Andrew from our staff just did a big story on him because he really believes – he never dropped a pass his entire career. And and I know that, that that's easy to go possession receiver. He can run. He's got good speed. So I'll be I'll be curious to see if he gets on somebody's team, you know, and, and uh, because I think he might be not a bad player, but it's so hard to tell guys as you know, especially at that position whether wide receivers are going to pan out or not. Pat, sure. you brought up Swain and you mentioned that you were surprised with where the speed came from. 12 of his 15 touchdowns over the course of his career came in the last two seasons. He actually had a team-high seven this past season. Was he mainly a red zone target? Was he scoring on lengthy passes down the field? How would you account for that type of production that emerged over the last two seasons? Well, there's no question they threw it to him deep some, but there there were some other plays, and I wanted to say it was Florida State this year where they threw him a a little screen, the bubble screen that they, they really ran a lot of those and he really was effective at breaking tackles and he ran over a guy at the goal line. So, I mean, that's the kind of uh, player he, he was this year for them. And, you know, so some of it was short, some of it was long, you know, he just found a way to get in the end zone and really has a nose for it. There was a play, you know, my seasons are wearing together. I think it was last year in Tennessee um, where they, they just threw him kind of a short pass, and he just outran the entire deep secondary to the end zone. And, and that's when I literally went, how did Freddie Swain get so fast? <laughs> Cleveland, a little bit bigger with his frame, a little bit more length, but I'm curious with, with this uh, trio, or certainly if you want to throw Hammond in there too, Pat, how much uh, press man did these guys see, and did they have trouble against the more physical corners that they had to go up against? Um, they saw a little bit of it. They, it wasn't a ton, but they definitely didn't have trouble when they did face it. Um, you can go back and look at tape of, of some of the games where they were they were able to just get off of it. I think one thing that has happened that was crucial, I think, to the Florida success the last two years, again, winning um, you know, double digits games every each year with Dan Mullen, was Billy Gonzalez. Billy Gonzalez knows what he's doing. He's a really good coach. I had uh, Coach Spurrier on our radio show down here yesterday, and all, he was raving about Billy Gonzalez because he knows how important a good wide receiver coach is. You know, wide receivers can be talented, and you can have a good quarterback, and you can have a great plan, but if they can't get off of press coverage and they can't understand how to do that, uh, they're, they're worthless, you know, and that's what Billy's been able to do. Billy Gonzalez has done a heck of a job 
uh, teaching these guys how to get off of it. And I think, you know, another thing that, that these guys are going to benefit from is they've got one of the best strength coaches in the country, and they all got so much stronger. And Nick Savage, uh, they got so much stronger, not just, you know, legs and the obvious arms, uh, you know, but hands. You know, it's, it's like you shift their hands after two years under Nick Savage, you went, oh, this guy's got a grip. Toughest grip I ever had, the, the, the hardest I, my hand ever got shook was Artis Gilmore. So I compare <laughs> in life. I literally was like, because I knew Artis, because I covered, actually, I was I was around JU and he was a player there. And I shook his hand at, at a golf tournament once. I went, ah! It was like that scene in uh, Superman 2, you know? <laughs> so... Um, but I mean, I always compare everybody to them, and they were—they are all, you know, the guy. When you shake their hand, you knew uh, these were strong hands, and you kind of understood why they were able to catch the ball. We're talking with Pat Dooley, who covers the Florida Gators for the Gainesville Sun. Pat, the last prospect of note is running back LaMichael Pirine, and I'm sure that name may be familiar to some because of Redskins running back. Samaj P. Ryan, I believe they are related in some capacity, Pat. Perhaps you yeah. can connect the family tree for us down the road here. Yeah, I but think I think they're cousins, yeah. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. Well, when you look at his numbers, it's interesting because it seems as if he was a big part of the passing game. 40 receptions this past season. Do you think he has more of an upside as that change of pace running back, I guess, as a result of that involvement? Or do you see him as a typical every down type of back at the next level? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think like last year they had Jordan Scarlett. So they kind of platoon those guys and, and Scarlett got the more carries this year. It was going to be P. Ryan's year. And it, but the running game, the, they did not have a good offensive line. They were not good at by any stretch. They'll be better next year. They get pretty much everybody back. But this year, they weren't very good in the run block. For some reason, they could pass block and not run block. I, I never got that explained to me, why they could do that. But they didn't open holes. And, and there was just nothing there for the most part. And then every once in a while, they would have the perfect running play call, and and nobody could catch Pete Ryan. Um, the, the Auburn game was he broke two tackles. And, and ran uh, like 80 yards for a touchdown. Uh, that was basically decided the game. Uh, against uh, Virginia in the Orange Bowl, they ran just a, a trap, um, pull trap. And he, I mean, he set up the defensive back so beautifully um, to just, so he couldn't he couldn't cut off the field on him and ran again for a touchdown. So he's got that skill. But, man, as a pass catcher, he was huge this year. And we talked to him about it down in Miami, he said, look, my goal this year was to become a great pass receiver so that I could show these guys in the NFL I can do whatever you need me to do. So I think he's going to have a chance. I, I, Of all the guys we've talked about, I would be least surprised if Michael P. Ryan became a really good player in the NFL. Well, i got to ask you one thing, though, Pat. If you're going to be catching passes out of the backfield in the National Football League, you also better be able to pick up some pass pro because there will be times that that blitz is going to get through. Uh, how much of it was he asked to do at Florida, and how effective was he? Well, he was asked to do it, uh, obviously, when he needed to do it, because, I mean, obviously, when you're running a guy as part of your passing, I mean, there were times when they literally would split him out as the 
third or fourth receiver and then run the, run the screen to him, and you know, and that worked really effectively. So he wasn't asked to do it a ton, but I'm telling you, when he did, there's a, a great video. I think it was the, the Virginia game. It might have been a different game. I'm, they're all running together now. It's been so long ago, it feels like, where he just crushes the blitzing linebacker. So, um, no, he's got – look, he's got all the skills. He's got everything. He's got a good attitude. I think he could be really a big-time player. Um, But, again, he wasn't asked to do it a ton, but every time he was asked to do it, he did a great job. Pat, before we let you go, is there anyone that jumps out to you that we may have missed that you think may fall under the radar and could be an emerging player at the next level? You know, um, not really. You pretty much covered them all because this was not a – a huge senior laden team. They, the, the the strength of this team was the four wide receivers and really the three because they didn't throw the ball a lot to Tyree Cleveland. Um, so the three wide receivers and then they have a tight end, Kyle Pitts, who's going to be in the NFL next year, I'm sure. Um, so they just they just threw the ball almost every down. So it, it didn't accentuate some of the other players. And, you know, a guy like David Reese is a who's a middle linebacker. What, I mean, if 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 you have third and one, I'd rather have David Reese on the field than anybody in college football. If it's third and eight, I don't think I want him on the field <laughs> because he, did, he didn't have that speed, you know, to cover a tight end or a, a running back out of the backfield. But, man, he, he could hit. And I don't know. You never know. An NFL team, they, they could look at it and they go, well, that's we want that guy for this certain situation. But as we all know, uh, your, your limited roster is sometimes it's hard to do that. Absolutely, unless they contribute to special teams, which you brought up yes. earlier with respect to Cleveland. And the rosters are expanding from 53 to 55, so maybe somebody like him could catch on with an NFL team. He is Pat Dooley, covers the Florida Gators for the Gainesville Sun. Pat, can't thank you enough. Really appreciate the time of the inside. I hope you and yours stay safe and healthy, and uh, thank you to your better half for her work on the medical front line, and hopefully she stays safe and healthy moving forward. Hey, thanks, guys. It was great talking to you, and uh, you guys stay safe and healthy as well. Thanks again to Pat Dooley, who covers the Florida Gators for the Gainesville Sun, for joining Paul and I and breaking down the Gators' prospects. We're now going to switch gears to Giants and NFL-related news, and so glad you could join us for Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app as well as all of your popular podcast platforms. A reminder, the Giants announced they have officially signed the following players, all pending physicals. James Bradbury, Nate Ebner, Cameron Fleming, Blake Martinez, Colt McCoy, Kyler Fackrell, and Levine Toilolo. Also, Cody Core has been re-signed. Now, the following agreements we are mentioning throughout the course of the show are not official. They are only according to the reports we attribute for each player or the group as a whole, and all of them are contingent upon the player's past a physical whenever that will take place. This applies to the following guys. Corey Coleman being re-signed, according to ESPN. Deion Lewis, multiple reports. And Austin Johnson, according to Dan Duggan of The Athletic. All right, so Paul, let's start with the two recent conference calls with the media for two of the official signings, and that is James Bradbury and Blake Martinez over the last few days interacted with the media. And I thought both of those guys had a number of interesting things to discuss. I want to start with Martinez. He had his conference call with the media on Monday, and one of the most interesting takeaways for me was he went into great detail, and he did not hesitate and said, this is going to be a very unique offseason for him as an individual as well as for a lot of players, whether they're new guys or rookies. 
or polished veterans because of the fact that the communication between the coaches and fellow teammates is going to have to go through technology because we have no idea what is going to happen throughout the offseason. And it was refreshing to hear a player at least admit that, yes, this is going to be a challenge and it's not going to be easy. But like anything else, you have to adjust. You have to go with the flow. And, you know, most players may try to give you the PR answer and say, hey, it's not that big of a deal. But I really like the fact that Martinez was up front with his takeaways and said, we're going to have to, as leaders such as himself, who know what it's like to put guys in the right position on the defensive side of the field, find ways to build that chemistry with teammates and digest and learn the playbook through other means. And he was not hesitating on that front. I think both literally and figuratively, he's in a position to kind of move into that slot because think of this. First of all, he's a Stanford guy, okay, and is known for a very high football acumen. That's number one. Number two, his linebacker's coach was Patrick Graham in Green Bay a couple of years ago, and now Graham is the Giants' defensive coordinator. So when you consider those two things, he's exactly the kind of guy who should be taking a cerebral approach to this situation. He is not foolish enough or naive enough to just come to the Giants and think that, oh, everything's going to be okay. He understands the challenges, he accepts the challenges, and he also has a very good uh, grasp of exactly what Coach Graham is going to ask him to do as the guy in the heart of that defense. So I think it's, it's, yes, refreshing to hear him say that, but really not surprising, at least from my perspective. The other thing that I thought was of note was he talked about how he is viewed outside of the NFL by Mm -hmm. media, by fans. And one of the things that was brought up was in terms of his overwhelming tackling numbers because he led the Packers in tackles for each of the last three seasons versus the coverage assignments that he was asked to do. And he specifically emphasized, Paul, that when Patrick Graham was there with him in 2018 and the other years that he played under Mike Pennon's defense, he was asked to be that cleanup guy, which is a phrase that he even utilized. Basically, be that second line of defense for all the elite pass rushers playing in front of you. Let them do their thing, and then you are there if anybody misses an assignment or a missed tackle. And he said that's what he was asked to do, and that's what he took pride in doing. He was not asked to necessarily shoot through the A gap or the B gap on a consistent force. So I think what he wanted to make clear was that he had a defined role and that's what he took on within the scheme and within the system. Now, Patrick Graham, he has said, may ask him to do new things and may ask him to have a more defined and specific role. But as far as Green Bay was concerned, he was supposed to be that cleanup guy, that tackling machine, as opposed to doing some of the other things that maybe linebackers are asked to do. Well, I think it's interesting in that in 2017, when he first became a full-time starter, he led the league with 144 combined tackles. Now, that was under Dom Capers, who, as we all know, is a very aggressive and very accomplished defensive coordinator who had a lot of years in this league. So I think that says something there because Capers gave him the helmet to call the signals. That's number one. I think that's very impressive, and that tells you a lot about what Capers thought of him as a second-year player. Now we go one more year further into 2018. Now that's where uh, Coach Patrick Graham is his position coach, 
And what happens that year? Well, okay, 144 tackles again, fine. But also on top of that, five sacks and six quarterback hits. All of a sudden, he's more of a blitzer. And he's a guy who's adding to the interior pass rush. Now, last year, there's no Capers and there's no Patrick Graham. Pedden is, is, as you said, the defensive coordinator. And all of a sudden, what happens? Well, now he's being asked to do totally different things because they signed Preston Smith. They signed Zadarius Smith. Those two guys are going to be the bookend backers. And as you described, Martinez's role in the defense changed dramatically. So now he's not so much attacking gaps and, and going forward and going vertical and, and maybe trying to put pressure on the quarterback. No, that's not part of his game now. The other part of his game that seems to have been taken away was the ability to play some man against some tight ends and to try to cover downfield. He was supposed to be, as he said, the cleanup guy who would play off of whatever the outside linebackers wanted to do. And if I understood him correctly, Lance, and I think you were on the call as well, he was alluding to the fact that it sounded like those two outside bookend linebackers, they were kind of on their own to freelance a little bit. And as he said, you know, they were there to make their plays and and I just had to clean up whatever was left. I was the, the you know, that, that guy who was in the middle of the whole thing who basically took care of whatever they left behind. It seemed to me that he was not the heart of their defense, even though he was in the middle of it. And, look, it clearly made him uncomfortable. That's why he said when the Packers during the offseason had made him an offer to come back, but they did not value the inside linebacker position as much as he thought it should be valued clearly. The change in requirements for the position did not fit what he thought his skill set was. And I think that as much as anything, besides the obvious connection to Patrick Graham, enticed him to come to the Giants. Yeah, the other thing connected to that, you know, speaking of assignments and what you're asked to do, and this is also goes back to what you and I have talked about a lot on this program. If you don't know the play call, whether it be on offense or defense, and you're looking at film, Paul, you're only seeing half the story. You're not seeing the entire story. So you could watch a play and you could say to yourself, well, why did the defender just stop? Why did he not carry on with the route when he was probably in best position to deflect the football or whatever it may be or make the tackle? And Martinez added more detail because he used the play It was, I believe, in the playoffs, or maybe it was the regular season game because the Packers played the Niners two times this year, and he said there was a play where Raheem Mostert, the running back for the Niners, got a big gain, and it was outside leverage that he was responsible for where he said that, you know, he should have probably played inside leverage, but a lot of it had to do with what he was asked to do within the defensive scheme, and sometimes it was passing the buck over to another player to make sure that they take care of that area of the field, especially if you're playing a zone defense. So I guess to me, what I took away from his commentary was there were times where maybe he wanted to have the ability to freelance a little, but he had to stick to his game plan. 
He studied his assignment. He stuck to that always. And then when you look at it from the naked eye, if you're a fan, you don't know what the play call was. You're probably not knowing the whole story. And you're thinking he had a missed assignment when maybe really it wasn't his fault in the big picture of things. Oh, I think that's very fair. And so this is his opportunity, at least it was, to explain himself and to try to make clear to people what he thinks they might not have seen. Now, of course, the proof is going to be in the pudding. Of course. He's now yeah. coming to the Giants. He's going to be smack in the middle of that defense with a coach in Coach Graham who is very much attuned to what, he, what it is that he wants to do and what he thinks he can do. So now let's see how that translates because it's going to be time for him to show everybody that he is indeed what he believes he is. The other thing that Martinez was asked right off the top because you mentioned the connection to Patrick Graham and how Patrick Graham knows him very well. He was asked, well, what is his take on Patrick Graham's defense? Because remember, Patrick Graham was the positional coach, the linebackers coach, and the run defense coordinator. He wasn't a defensive coordinator until he went to Miami, and Blake Martinez was not with him. And his response was not about exactly what the scheme is going to call for, but what he did say was that he felt Patrick Graham was a very smart, and detailed-oriented coach. And he mentioned that during weeks of preparation, Paul, Patrick Graham would be the type of coach, he'd get the linebackers in the room, and he would know the opposing scheme so well, and he would tell the guys, hey, this is a team that runs a lot of crossing routes, so be prepared for that. And they would run drills as a linebacking group, I'm talking about. They would run drills during the week, he said, that would make the transition from practice to game smooth so that they weren't necessarily caught off guard. They may have not executed all the time. They may have not made all the plays, but he felt as if he always was well-prepared based on the small nuances of the game that Patrick Graham would pick up. Now, Patrick Graham's a product of Yale. He's an Ivy League guy, so I don't think that should surprise anybody. But I thought that was interesting that he felt the communication and the preparation was never an issue. The execution may have not always been there, and you could say that about every team, Paul, but he felt Graham was the type of guy that was so detailed-oriented that he never felt as if he was caught off guard, at least, going into a game. That, to me, was a big takeaway when he was asked about what he expects out of this defensive scheme. He called Coach Graham the smartest coach I think he's ever been around, right? Yeah. I mean... Can you give can you give somebody a better endorsement than that? He said, and I, and I'm again I'm paraphrasing here, that everybody on the defense is going to know exactly what it is that they're supposed to do and what the entire defense is supposed to do, because he said that Coach Graham is an absolute stickler for preparation, and that he will leave every single rock overturned to get to the bottom of it. And should this surprise you, Coach Graham comes from the Belichick coaching tree. You connect the dots. He knows Joe Judge. So 100%, he has been taught and prepared accordingly, and now he has passed that on to his players. My last interesting nugget from the Blake Martinez conference call was more of a personal note, and it's actually going to come in extremely handy, Paul, given the current circumstances of the country. So his father's a contractor, from what I understand, and he's got his house in Arizona, and while Blake was playing with the Packers last season, his father constructed a workout facility, which is connected to his house, and 
the timing could have not been more ideal. It was up and running right now in the offseason, and now all of a sudden he's isolated. So it's got a workout room. They've got a turf field he talked about. So he's able to actually continue his workout regimen, even though he can't be at a facility. And talk about luxury, have it right in your own backyard during these trying times. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's one thing that I can guarantee you. When he gets to the Giants facility, he's going to be in shape. Yes, I think that's a fair <laughs> takeaway and a fair assumption. That was the first thing I said. All right, well, listen, it may be a challenge, Paul, for him to build chemistry with teammates from a schematic standpoint, but I don't think the Giants coaching staff is worried about whenever he is able to return to the facility. I don't think they're going to be asking him, Blake, uh, what exactly have you been doing the last few months? No, no, I don't think there are any worries about that whatsoever. So James Bradbury also spoke to the media. That was late last week, and... This was one of the things that you and I talked about when they signed him. It was about the fact that when the team parted ways with Janoris Jenkins, the one thing lacking in that cornerback room, and Jerome Henderson, the DB's coach, I'm sure even had this as his initial takeaway. My goodness, this is a young group. Where's my veteran voice? Well, they now get the veteran voice in James Bradbury, and he talked about that. He was asked one question, and, and this to me was one of his most insightful answers. He was asked throughout the course of his high school career, college career, NFL career, Paul, did he have a situation where he had to serve as a mentor? He had to groom somebody. And he went back to his days with the Panthers, which is not too long ago, and he brought up 2018, Carolina drafted Dante Jackson, second-round pick, and he mentioned that over the last two seasons, 18 and last season, his responsibility was to really bring Jackson along how to break down and watch film so that he could anticipate routes. Jackson has been, if you look at his resume, he's been an extremely productive player since he came into the league. But Bradbury said the reason why he looked at him and said, hey, you've got an immense amount of talent, let me help you take you to the next level, was once again, those small nuances that we were talking about that Blake Martinez spoke about Patrick Graham. And that, to me, is another strong asset in addition to Bradbury being able to say, hey, I can handle the top wide receiver and that could take pressure off of a DeAndre Baker and so forth. The other thing is him in the film room and him taking these guys under his wing and showing them what he studies on a weekly basis that they can then take away. Well, he was very quick to mention DeAndre Baker when it was specified during the question that what do you think What do you think about him, former first-round pick, and you're probably going to play opposite him. And he said, uh, you know, he had watched Baker coming out of school, and he thought he was a great athlete and that he was looking forward to working with him. That says to me he wants to get that youngster in the film room. That's what that says to me because he's done it before, as you said, in Carolina. I think he wants to do it again here, and I think you're going to see a similarity between both of the young corners that he has worked with over the course of his career. And then he was quick to say, I also, you know, want to mention, I want to work with the other guys too. So obviously Beal and Love and, and uh, Ballantyne will get their share of tutelage as well. But I do think that there's a certain amount of pride that Bradbury expressed in being that mentor to a youngster. And Baker, being a much-heralded first-round pick, is exactly the kind of guy I think he's, he's going to be wanting to polish up. Well, because I think it's interesting that Bradbury knows, listen, the Giants have invested in him because they want to find that number one corner. But at the same time, it's the old cliche, Paul. 
You're only as good as the remaining guys in the secondary. And I think Bradbury understands that. He could come in. He can make a significant impact on his side of the field. But that doesn't mean that a quarterback's not going to look elsewhere. So I think he understands that he has to take on perhaps an additional responsibility and a responsibility that he's more than comfortable doing because he's been exposed to it. You know, there's a lot of veterans, Paul. We've seen this over the course of NFL history. They're solid players. Maybe they're not the most vocal guys, and that's fine. Not everybody should be forced to get up in front of the entire locker room and direct traffic, but there's also guys that keep to themselves, and they say, hey, you know what? I'm going to go about my business. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to make sure that I'm well-prepared so that I don't miss any assignments. But then there's other guys that say, I'm going to do that, and in addition to that, I'm going to make sure that if anybody else needs my help, I'm going to set some time aside each week to do that. And that, I think, is extremely encouraging Certainly, it's nice to hear, but I'm sure that was part of what went on when the Giants were talking with him during the free agency process that, hey, James, you're going to be walking into a locker room with a lot of young guys, but specifically, your positional group is not necessarily as battle-tested as someone like you or a veteran team like the Panthers that you've been on going back to the beginning of your career. So he had to at least know that, hey, this is what I'm walking into, and I better be able to embrace those opportunities that are going to come in front of me. He may have been able to figure that out from a long-range perspective, but he had said that he did not talk to Dave Gettleman, who had been his GM in Carolina, and in fact, he was shocked when the Giants called his agent and made them an offer, but he was quick to take it. And I think, to be honest, one of the other factors here that I'm intrigued by and it goes to the tutelage of the youngsters that you're addressing, is the fact that he's averaged 70 tackles a season in his four years in the NFL, which means he's not afraid to mix it up. He's not one of those prima donna corners who just wants to be on ESPN's highlight films because he's he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. This is a guy who will support the run and is willing to get physical and is not going to be afraid to lower his shoulder into a guy to make a tackle. And I think that's important because if he's going to be the Papa Bear, if you will, in the defensive backs room, those young corners are going to need to understand that, hey, this is the guy who's supposed to be mature. This is the guy who's supposed to be showing us how to play in this league. If he's willing to get his hands dirty and he's willing to mix it up and support the run game and get in there and make those tackles, we better do the same thing. None of this diva stuff, not that these guys are because I get no – no inclination from Love or Ballantyne that they are. Now, Baker, of course, is a little bit of a showman. You know, being the number one pick coming out of Georgia, he certainly is a bit more gregarious. But I also think he was humbled by his rookie season and the difficulties that he had. And I think it is a good example for all of those young corners to learn from a guy who is not afraid to stick his nose in there. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Giants.com, the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, Tuesday's edition, as we're focusing on some of the latest Giants news, both James Bradbury as well as Blake Martinez had recent conference calls. Now to shift gears, Paul, over to NFL-related news. Earlier in the year, it was announced that because of the current circumstances due to the coronavirus pandemic, the annual league meeting canceled. However, Just like teams have to get creative, the owners are getting creative, and this week they're holding conference calls amongst the owners to discuss some league-related issues, potential rule changes, and one of the things that has been widely reported, specifically by the NFL Network, is that today the owners are expected to take a vote 
on whether or not they're going to expand the playoffs beginning this season. Now, once the new CBA went into play, the players signed off on it, meaning the players said, okay, we're fine with expanding the postseason. So now the owners have to finish the other side of the equation. It's going to require a three-quarter majority vote of the 32 owners. And what this means is that each conference is going to have an additional playoff team. So it's going to go from six to seven. And there's only going to be one team getting the bye as opposed to two. Now, we talked about this when the initial reports came out. And, you know, I continue to stand with hesitancy because I love the playoff format as it is. And I'm not fond of the percentage of teams getting in because I think to a certain degree it waters down the regular season. But I'm not naive. I understand the economic rationale and the popularity of the league. But I don't see any reason why, considering the owners were pushing for it, that they're not going to vote in favor of this. And the expectancy is that this season will be the first year that we're going to go to now 14 playoff teams. Well, this show, as everybody knows, goes up on the website on tape delay. So by the time people hear this, it may have already been voted on. But let's assume for the argument or sake of this conversation that indeed it has passed. I want to give out a number that in my mind allows this thing to at least be more tasty than than it would have been to naysayers. If the three wild cards per conference had been in place since realignment in 2002, Not one team with a losing record would have made the playoffs as a number seven seed. And I think that is the naysayer's best argument to say, oh, a a seven and nine team getting in, which, as you know, has happened a couple of times in in the NFL. And they've won divisions, by the way, seven and nine. The Panthers. Well, they were seven, eight and one. And then the Seahawks were seven and nine. Correct. And that makes people cringe. Nobody wants to see a sub-500 team make it. So, doing the research, not one sub-500 team would have made the playoffs if we had gone with this new rule since realignment in 2002. So, that means 18 NFL seasons. Now, to further look through the research, take those 18 NFL seasons, who would have made it? Well, you would have had nine, eight, and eight teams be seven seeds. You would have had 18, nine, and seven teams be seven seeds. You would have had eight, ten, and six teams be a seven seed. And you would have had one, 11, and five team be a seventh seed. So what I'm basically telling you is that there were nine teams since 2002 that have won either 10 or 11 games that got shut out of the playoffs in the current format, but with the revised format would have been able to get into the postseason, again, with a record of either 10-6 and six or 11-5. and five. When I looked at those numbers, I said to myself, I can chew on that. I support it. Well, I'm going to take it a step even further, Paul. I've got data here, and this is courtesy of NFL.com, from 1990, which further supports what you were just showcasing based on the data. Since 1990, the year that the playoff field expanded from 10 teams to 12, okay, so that was the last time they expanded, 44 of the 60 teams that would have claimed the seventh seeds had winning records, including 10 different 10-win teams. Only one team, the 1990 Cowboys, would have made the playoffs 
with a losing record. So that means there were a lot of 500 teams that would have counted in the 16 teams that were not part of the 44 with winning records, but just one of those had a losing record, and that was the Cowboys in the 1990 playoffs. So that data also proves, if you go back to 1990, which would be 12 additional years from where you left off, Paul, you're still looking at overwhelming data that shows you're at least going to have a 500 team make the postseason, much more so than you would have a 7-9 and nine team or lower. Well, and that's great that it fortifies the point, but but I look at the numbers that I gave you since 2002 because that's where the NFL went to two conferences of four divisions each with four teams in each division. So meaning that's when we had 32 teams, essentially, is what Correct. you're saying. Correct. Yeah. That, that, is the, that is the current structure that's fair. of the NFL. That, that came into play in 2002 when they realigned the divisions, and, of course, there was the Houston Texans in there uh, as well. So, you know, to me, that's the good starting point for the argument, and, it, and it's crystal clear. Not that your numbers don't say anything, because certainly they reinforce it, but again, the structure of the standings were different when you go back to 1990. Yeah, especially the level of competition, the parity in the league, all of those things need to be taken into consideration. Now, I will agree that I am part of the group that is not in favor of rewarding teams that are 500. Forget losing record teams, 500 teams. But as you mentioned, from 2002, we're talking about very rare that that occurs. My bigger concern is more of the watering down of the regular season, Paul. And that's where my argument comes from because now all of a sudden you're going to 44% of the NFL teams are going to be making the playoffs. And prior to that, it was a much lower number. Now, when you look at all professional sports, the NFL is still not on the extreme high side because the NHL and the NBA, you have over 50% of the teams make the postseason. And MLB is at 33% right now. But remember, they're even having talks about expanding their postseason. So before you know it, 33% is going to be a lot higher too. But I always liked the fact that the NFL was on the extreme low side and it was very difficult. Also, it put great value in winning the division, which you could still make the argument holds true in the new playoff format. I just, once again, I like the fact that you got 16 games and every single game, Paul, is so important. Now, I'm not saying that games are going to be less important now, but you knew you've got to basically win your division because to rely on a wild card is very, very risky. That's what I loved about the current, because we have yet to implement the new one, NFL playoff format. Well, trust me, the wild card is still going to be risky because the list of tiebreakers goes from here to the other end of the Hudson (laughs) River. So trust me, it's not like it's going to be any easier necessarily, except that, yes, by uh, percentages, there is going to be one more team getting in in each conference. Uh, But I would say this to you, Lance, and, you know, with the way that the NFL is now, and we all know I talk about the quicksand of mediocrity, the truth of the matter is there's been so much watered down, and it's so hard to keep teams together, to develop teams, to have depth on teams, thanks to free agency and the salary cap. It seems to me that if we go to the extra playoff team, What you're doing is you're giving a little bit of hope to a team that may have lost a star player for a month or two due to a significant injury. Let's say it's a quarterback or their lead receiver or their lead running back, and you're saying, you know what, we know you're a really good team, but you got stabbed in the back by an injury 
to a really important player where the league rules basically don't allow you to accumulate depth. We know now that if a team in like week number three gets their lead running back hurt, in most cases, they're, they're in big trouble. If they lose their lead all-pro wide receiver, they're probably in big trouble. If they lose their quarterback for a month, chances are they're in big trouble. Chances are. They're going to be exceptions. I understand that. But chances are a significant injury to a key position is going to pretty much deep six their season and their playoff chances. The extra playoff spot in each conference allows those teams a chance to get somebody healthy. Hopefully the injury, while serious enough to maybe keep a guy out for a month, will allow him to get back for the second half of the season, and all of a sudden that team has a better chance now of trying to make a run and somehow sneak in as maybe the seventh wild card. And at the same time, based on the stats, we're not going to reward them for being a sub-500 team. We're still telling them you're going to have to still have a representative record that makes you a playoff caliber club. And that's my final argument to it. Well, and we saw a lot of injuries to the quarterback position, specifically in 2019. So I would say many teams were tested in that department. The only thing that I would counter your point is, I also think it says a lot about a team, whether or not they prepare accordingly with a suitable backup quarterback. And if you do that, like the Saints, for example, all of a sudden you remain undefeated without Drew Brees and you keep your head above water. So that, to me, is a better test to say, hey, this team knew they had to prioritize certain positions. And now that we're going from 53 to 55, you have a little bit more wiggle room to perhaps do that based on how you want to structure your roster. But there's no doubt about it. It certainly keeps teams mathematically alive a little bit with hope because they realize, hey, there's one more additional playoff spot. If we lose a game or two early on, maybe we have time to recover. And because the salary cap and free agency as it is, look, everything about the fabric of the current business structure of the NFL goes against acquiring depth at key positions. That's the problem with the business of the league. It's very, very, very difficult. It's almost impossible to cover yourself depth-wise at the key positions on your roster. So I'm with you, Lance. Yeah, it's great. If you're lucky enough and you're fortunate enough that the injury happens at one key position where you have a suitable backup, God bless you. But that's rolling the dice. I think the bulk of the teams would say, no, we're going to be destroyed by that one injury because the fabric of the league won't let you fortify your roster on the depth chart. And so that would be my, my best argument for it. And, and quite honestly, I would also say this. Look, I believe as a fan, there is nothing worse than playing exhibition games in December. That, to me, is horrific. As an NFL fan who just loves this league and loves this game, I don't want to see exhibition games in December. They are meant to be played in August. And if the extra wild card will allow two, three, four teams per conference an opportunity to play a meaningful game in week one or week two of December and allow them to smell that aroma just a little bit longer past Thanksgiving, well, God bless. It certainly will spice things up. There's no doubt about it, as you mentioned. And what you just pointed out further proves that the draft is extremely important when it comes to building teams. How'd you like to figure out those tiebreakers, by the way? Well, I'm not looking forward to that. And thankfully, we have a number of months to worry about that. We don't have to get bottled down in the numbers so quickly right now. 
Lance Middle, Paul Dettino with you here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. All right, now let's get to some of your Twitter questions. And a reminder, we are unable to take your phone calls, as you well know, based on the few weeks that we've been doing the show under the new circumstances. But we want to maintain fan interaction. So please continue to submit your questions either using hashtag GiantsChat on Twitter. You can submit them through Giants.com. We're compiling a list of all these questions. And you could also send them in directly to individual hosts. On Twitter, I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. All right, Paul, let's get to a few. This one comes from Damon. What are the biggest challenges that the Giants are facing in the upcoming season? Well, I mean, doesn't every NFL team have a huge challenge to face this offseason as they try to prepare their reworked roster and, in some cases, reworked coaching staff? I think that's at the top of the list. It Doesn't it have to be? Absolutely, without I mean, hesitation. Everything else is secondary compared to trying to prepare your team for what's ahead. I mean, th- we were in uncharted waters here uh, in terms of not being able to have contact. I mean, even when they had the work stoppage, okay, players were doing things on their own. They were collecting in, in different uh, high school fields or college fields or going out to the park, and guys were having passing drills and running scout team stuff and going through schemes and formations. And at least, guys, I mean, I'm going up. I went to Bergen Catholic to see the Giants when there was that work stoppage the last time, and I watched the Giants players on their own. Sean O'Hara was up there as one of the co-captains helping to run a practice. These guys can't do that now, Lance. There's nothing going on. This is a big deal. 100%. But I want to take it a step further, too, Paul, because I think specifically to the Giants compared to some other teams, they have even more of a challenge. Because keep this in mind. Joe Judge is a first-time head coach, period, okay? Forget just the NFL. This is the first time he's a head coach in his career. That's not to say that he's not ready and not experienced enough. But the last thing you want to have to worry about in your first year as a head coach is to not necessarily have OTAs and some of the other key ingredients when it comes to the offseason. So the Giants, unlike some other teams, that's another challenge. The second thing is it's completely new schemes, Across the board, there's no carryover, Paul, from 2019. You have a new offensive coordinator. You have a new defensive coordinator. Now, once again, it's an experienced staff he put together, but you're teaching all of the players, whether they're young or old, a new scheme for the first time. Some of these guys do have connections, such as a Blake Martinez and Cameron Fleming with Jason Garrett and Mark Colombo with the Dallas Cowboys, and we could give you a few others. But the majority of the roster, everything is new. So I think that adds even more of a challenge to the Giants' plate, Paul, compared to some of these other coaches and teams who have continuity and carryover because they did not change coaches and they did not change schemes. I would agree with that. And can I throw one other sure. uh, log onto that fire? Usually by the time the draft comes around and we're a month away— Teams already have their schedule, and they know who they're going to play in the first month of the season, and they're already doing work on those first couple of teams. How are you going to do that now? Well, the coaches can do that remotely. I mean, they could certainly, I'm sure, access some of the film no, no, remotely but you, and do but that. But you have no idea who you're playing the first couple of weeks of the season. See, if you know, if you're the Giants, and you know you're going to play the Ravens and the Seahawks in the first two weeks of the season, you're going to start doing some extra stuff on them now because you know yeah. you're not going to have any other times to get prep done. 
You also know that when you play them, there won't be any recent tape to go through. So you're going to have to go through what you had available to you during the offseason. But if you're going to play the Ravens and the Seahawks in November, you're not doing much to prepare for them now because you know that by the time you get to November, you're going to look at October tape. So it does make a difference whether or not you have the schedule. No, I think that's a valid point. So all of these movable parts, I guess what we're talking about, are related to the Giants and maybe a little bit more compared to some of these other teams who have their coaching staffs in shape for the last few seasons, or maybe this is year two, for example, Green Bay, Matt LaFleur, he'll now have an entire season under his belt to apply to with the coaching staff. You know, that I think is going to be something that the Giants are going to have to deal with compared to some other teams, and that to me is the most significant challenge. As far as what the season has to offer, you know, they'll approach that when the time comes, and they'll make the necessary adjustments like any other team, but to me, it's more about what the Giants are facing right now in the offseason compared to some of the other squads all right everything else pales in comparison Lance that's the bottom line this offseason is by far the biggest challenge and until these teams get over that mountain nothing else really matters let's go to our second question this comes from Jay Diaz since we got Cam Fleming he asks does this mean we are going defense in the first round and get an offensive lineman in the second round or no lineman at all in the draft? So this is another popular question. Let me just preface this. We get a lot of these, Paul. It's the coulda, woulda, shoulda game. Based on what we see in free agency, is that going to dictate what's going to happen in the first round? So he's saying the Cam Fleming edition, what does this mean in terms of the first and the second round with respect to maybe defense or another offensive lineman? I'm going to make this short and sweet, Lance, because I've been saying it every day since I was at the Combine in Indianapolis. In my opinion, I would take Simmons at number four and take the best offensive tackle on the board at number 36. And I believe that the Cam Fleming uh, deal, in my mind, is something that even pushes me further toward that belief because he's an accomplished NFL player who I think can be a functional starter if necessary. And I think he can be a functional starter. I'm with you. He also has experience at both tackle spots. I've compared him to Sean Locklear on previous shows. I'm going to stand by that, who was with the team in 2012, and he was that swing tackle and jack-of-all-trades offensive lineman. I think he can assume either one of those roles. However, I'm still a big believer, Paul, that what you do in free agency doesn't necessarily dictate the tone of where you go, even with that fourth overall pick. So it would not stun me if the Giants came back and took an offensive lineman because remember Cam Fleming is a short-term deal Cam Fleming is not necessarily an answer for the next five years and if they feel especially with a new coach they want to build the continuity on the offensive line and say this could be an offensive lineman that we can have for the next five or six years whatever it may be depending on after the rookie contract then I don't think they should hesitate to go back in that direction even though they may have addressed that position in the offseason I've made it very clear I'd be very very surprised if they don't draft an offensive tackle or maybe even a setter in this draft but in my mind 36 is the sweeter spot there for the old lineman as opposed to number four and the one thing I'll add to the part of the question with respect to defense they can still use playmakers at every level, specifically getting after the quarterback. So going the defensive route, you can't go wrong as far as I'm concerned if that's where the Giants choose to go with the fourth overall pick. Phillip asks, does the signing of Deion Lewis, which once again is still contingent on a physical and it is unofficial from the Giants' perspective, this is all according to multiple reports, mean that Wayne Goleman 
will not be utilized again. Do you guys see Goldman possibly being traded or cut? I really think he's an outstanding back and has performed exceptionally well when given a chance. This goes back to the coach knowing his players, and Deion Lewis and Joe Judge have a connection with the New England Patriots. Joe Judge has no connection at all to Wayne Goldman, and so you'd have to believe that right now, Lewis, at the very least is going to compete with Goldman for that job and in all likelihood comes in with a foot ahead of him. Whenever you have a new coaching staff, all bets are off because you don't want to make the assumption, Paul, that the way the previous regime looked at a player is identical to the way the new regime is going to look at a player. Plus, you also bring up a good point about Lewis has connections to Joe Judge because they cross paths in New England. And I'm sure the familiarity was something that helped Lewis's cause as to why, according to multiple reports, it looks like he's going to wind up with the Giants. But who's to say that they may want to keep three running backs and they see value in Wayne Goldman still? I don't think that the writing is on the wall that just because Lewis appears to be coming aboard, Paul, that Goldman doesn't stand a chance to carve out a role or hang with the Giants. If well, anything, on, it's Lance. just more competition at this point. I never said that Wayne Goldman is off the team. No, what I and, said and I'm not is, saying that you did. I'm, yeah. I'm interpreting the question, which was inferring yeah. that is he possibly going to be traded or cut because of Deion Lewis's arrival and Lewis, you would assume, is going to be that change of pace, third down type of back. Yeah, I would think at this point, as far as the depth chart is concerned, you'd have to believe because of the fact that they went out and signed Lewis and because of his connection to the Patriots and Judge, that he has a leg up on being the number two running back on the depth chart. Now, he's still going to have to come in and prove that he deserves to be in that spot. And then even if he does win that, that does not prohibit Wayne Gallman from settling as, the, as number three. I'm with you. The other thing that shouldn't be overlooked, remember, when Saquon Barkley was banged up, Wayne Goldman was asked to fill in. And there were games where Goldman came in, and I thought he was extremely effective. So I would agree with the question and the tone of the question to say that at times when he filled in, you know, you really felt good about the Giants being in a strong position. There's no doubt about it. Goldman has value. Unfortunately, the opportunities didn't necessarily present themselves consistently for him last season. But then again, when you have Saquon Barkley on your roster, Paul, you're not going to all of a sudden tell him, all right, take off two quarters now and let Wayne Goldman get an opportunity. Because you know what? In fairness, Deion Lewis, go back and look at the numbers. Deion Lewis only had just over 50 carries last season because the Titans said, we've got Derrick Henry. Yep. He's a monster. He's effective. We're not going to take him off the field just so that we can give Deion Lewis a few reps. The philosophy, I think, is going to be very similar in terms of the Giants offense and Jason Garrett. We're not going to take Saquon Barkley off the field, just like Garrett, and then we're not taking Zeke off the field very often. I think the shame of it for Wayne Gallman is that when he came in as a rookie in 17, he showed significant flashes and made you believe that he could be more than just a bit player, but he actually could be somewhat of a rotational player. And then the Giants draft, you know, the Hall of Famer to be in Saquon Barkley, and now Gallman's role gets diminished. And whether or not it's his fault, who knows? It could simply be circumstances between injuries and then not getting the ball because Barkley's getting it all the time. Gallman's numbers significantly dropped. And unfortunately, a guy coming in from the outside looks at that and says, well, it's been, what, three years since you've really made an impact on the field. And so now the player has to overcome that that. Thinking, whether or not, again, is perception reality, I don't know. 
But certainly Judge thought enough of Deion Lewis in his past to be cool with the Giants bringing him in. And that's why, you know, we feel as we do. Let's fit in one more. This comes from Twitter, and it comes from Deuce. How important is it for last year's draft to produce this season, especially X-Man and Lorenzo Carter, for Dave Gettleman to consider Phase 3 a forward success? It's huge. It's huge. Let's not kid ourselves. Right now, the Giants don't have a proven bona fide double-digit pass rusher on their roster unless you consider what Fackrell did with the Packers a couple of years ago. I don't know if that was an aberration or that's something that we can expect to see again because he has been reunited with Patrick Graham, who was his linebackers coach in Green Bay. God bless if that's the case. That would be sensational. But the Giants still have a guy who's unsigned in Marcus Golden who had 10 sacks last year, and at this point, he's not back. I don't know if he is coming back. And, again, you put the Giants in another situation where they have a Robin potentially if Fackrell can live up to his previous billing, but you don't have a Batman, which means it's going to have to be done with scheme and or improvement from within. And that's the key phrase here, improvement from within. Carter, Zimenez, and anybody else on that defensive front seven who decides that they want to get to the quarterback, now would be a good time to do it. 100%. Dexter Lawrence I would throw in there as well. I mean, it's a group effort. All of those young guys, they need all of them to step up across the board. They've invested draft picks in these players over the last few seasons, and now they want them to be able to spread their wings and do it consistently so that if they don't make a major move again in free agency, that they can do a lot of the heavy lifting to complement some of the free agents that have been brought in. But you you go back to last season, Paul. This team had 36 sacks, and that put them in the bottom half of the league. This has been something we've always talked about. I know you like the number 42 as a target for sacks. I know you've thrown that out time and time again. And if you had 42, that would put you in a nice position where you're right around the top half of the league. So I think that's a very wise goal. So if you were 36 last year, and those 36, by the way, included Marcus Golden, who you just referenced, who was by far your most effective pass rusher in terms of quarterback hits and sacks, and he's still a free agent, and you can't operate with the idea that he's definitely coming back. Okay, well, who's going to then account for those 10 sacks? Who's going to provide that type of consistent pressure? Because now, as far as I'm concerned, Paul, you're down to 26. You went, we're at 36 with Marcus Gold. Now you've got to operate. You're down to 26. So now, if you want to get to your 42, we're not just talking about 10. you got now 16 that you got to make up for. So it goes without saying you need guys like Lorenzo Carter and X-Man to take significant steps forward. Not Whoa. just for Phase 3. I would just say for overall the defensive productivity that you're hoping to see in 2020 well sure and you hope that the back end is going to cover longer with the additional experience and the signing of Bradbury so that those guys will have that extra half a step to get to the QB Leonard Williams once had seven sacks for the Jets remember when he went to the Pro Bowl I mean if, if he could come up with seven this year that'd be a nice number 
If he could have a breakout year with the Giants, that would go a long way in terms of helping fill the void left behind by Marcus Golden if he's not re-signed. Yeah, that would be another area. That's why I brought in, when you hit on, it's not just those guys, it's everybody on the defensive line that feels that they're capable of getting after the quarterback. Dexter Lawrence has to be included. Dalvin Tomlinson is another guy. I mean, I know these guys are not known for their huge sack totals, but listen, even if you could get two or three or four out of those guys, hey, you know, that's a step in the right direction, Paul. Well, bottom line is Bill Belichick has always believed that if you just play really good defense and you do what you're supposed to do, fundamentally sound, and you can scheme it, uh, you're going to keep yourself in a lot of games and win a lot of ball games as long as you play disciplined football. And I know that's Bill's foundation, And despite the fact that when he was with the Giants as a D.C., he had Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks and Leonard Marshall and George Martin and all those guys. That helped it, Ted. It sure did. (laughs) But look what he's done with the Patriots. Many years when they did not have a Batman, they still contended or won a Super Bowl because he does believe in those core fundamentals. And again... Patrick Graham is bringing those fundamentals to the Giants. So is Joe Judge. And so, again, I'm going to say this one more time. I'd love 42 sacks. That's always my golden number. But if they don't get 42 it doesn't mean they are automatically going to have a porous defense. No, it's not life and death. It's just that's a target, and that number also is based on when we look at the stats and the trends over the last few seasons, normally if you end up with about 42, you're in the top half of the league. And I think that's a realistic goal, Paul. That's what I take away from the number that you threw out. And also, that was a number I believe that even Steve Spagnuolo, when he was defensive coordinator here, you know, was a bullet point that he would try to emphasize as well. Because, you know, you look at the analytics. You look at the statistics. Coaches do that. They just want to get an idea where would we be if we finish with that type of number. Oh, I didn't know Spags threw out that number. He's stealing something from me. Well, there you go. Maybe I shouldn't have brought that up because now you're going to pat yourself on the back for the remainder of the day. There you go. Here's one other number I want to throw out before we wrap up shop. And this is a number that has to be brought down. And this goes to your point about the sack production shouldn't just be a focus of what's going on in the front seven. You need to take into consideration what's going on in the back end. Last season, Paul, the Giants gave up 67 pass plays of 20 or more yards. That was, to put things in perspective, the sixth most in the NFL. And for the bulk of the year, because these were numbers we were monitoring each and every week, the Giants were actually one or two in the NFL. Towards the latter part of the season, they fell down slightly. Sixth highest total in terms of 20-plus yard passing plays. That's got to also be improved. As much as we want to talk about the sacks have to go up or the sacks need to remain consistent in that 36 ballpark, you need to make sure that you're not duplicating the 67 number as well. Well, I'm going to give you one other perspective, and then I'm going to go because I'm getting tired, Lance. (laughs) Uh, The fact is, if you get a sack, okay, you can't get an interception. And the Giants haven't been getting enough of interceptions either. Pressures and quarterback hits result usually in more interceptions. Sacks may result in more fumbles if you get a strip sack. But it's the pressures and the hits that will more often wind up getting picked off. And so the Giants need to increase that number as well. 
A reminder, the Giants announced they've officially signed the following players pending physicals. James Bradbury, Nate Ebner, Cameron Fleming, Blake Martinez, Colt McCoy, Kyler Fackrell, and Levine Toilolo. Cody Core has also been re-signed. The following agreements we have mentioned on the show, not official. They are all only according to the reports we attribute for each player or the group as a whole, and all of them are contingent upon the players passing a physical whenever that will take place. That is to be determined. This applies to... Corey Coleman re-signed according to ESPN, Deion Lewis, multiple reports, and Austin Johnson, the defensive lineman, according to Dan Duggan of The Athletic. We appreciate everybody tuning in as that is going to wrap up Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We thank Pat Dooley from the Gainesville Sun for joining us earlier in the program to break down the Florida Gator prospects. We're going to continue to break down prospects from all of the schools across the country that are notable for the draft as we get you set for the 2020 NFL Draft coming up in less than a month. Paul, always a pleasure going back and forth. Look forward to doing it again shortly. Another fun show, Lance. Thank you. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday and always stay locked to Giants.com for the latest. Have a good one.